0: You are listening to Future Net Zero, a platform to help businesses and the wider community improve our lives and our planet by achieving net zero.
1: Hello and welcome to this Future Net Zero podcast with me, Sumit Bose. Today, we're looking at electric assets, assets you can use for optimization, for flexibility, how much more they will play a role in the future as we head towards net zero, and particularly in these troubled times where we're all under financial pressures as businesses, could you be doing more with the assets you have? To take me through all of that, give you lots of ideas, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Jake Miller, who is the electric assets lead at Drax Energy Group. How are you, Jake?
0: Good, thanks. Thanks for having me on. How are you?
1: Yeah, yeah, good, good. Let's talk about this thing because it's one of those things where people probably who who have them know a lot about them, but people who don't know very little about. First of all, what is an asset, an electric asset? What electric, electrical asset? What what are they in common parlance that business people would understand?
0: So in the kind of simplest sense, it could be something that a customer's installed specifically for the generation or kind of change of demand of electricity something like a battery that they'd have on their site but it can also be anything that is on site that uses electricity that can be turned up down on or off so an example i like to use quite often is kind of commercial refrigeration where you have a warehouse that is cold storage you've got fans keeping it cold all day that can actually probably be turned down for half an hour or an hour the stock within that refrigeration won't go off because you're still within the temperature bounds. But you can potentially turn down up to a megawatt of power, depending on the size of the fridge, and that can be quite lucrative for businesses. So, it can be things specifically installed for the use of electricity, or it can be things that you're doing, you're using for another process, but can actually be controlled in a way that doesn't affect your your primary usage on site.
1: So they don't have to be large things. I, I think of it, you know, you've got a wind turbine, you've got solar array, things like that. That's not what you're talking about.
0: So more at the moment, the the kind of the things that use electricity. So it can be, like I said, a fridge, it can be a water pump, it can be a foundry, it can be anything on site that uses electricity. As we move to a more kind of renewable based grid and intermittent grid and customers are installing their own self-generation, then that is enabled via energy storage and stuff like that. But it isn't necessarily kind of things that are installed with the future in mind. It could be things that have been installed for 10, 20 years on your site that you can just use in a kind of more cost-aware and carbon-aware way.
1: What's the point? Why do we want to do this?
0: The most pertinent point this winter, especially with bills as they are, is that it can help businesses and eventually domestic users to reduce their bills. So the way that electricity works in the UK is that there's a different price for every half hour. So the ability to find when those really high prices are coming or indeed those really low prices to enable you to say, charge your electric vehicle at a cheaper time and discharge it at a more expensive time. That's probably the biggest driver. The most interesting part of it for me is the enabler of a future energy grid that allows us to reach net zero. So if you think that we're replacing a grid that has been mostly stocked by coal and gas and big fossil fuel plants that are kind of reliable, and they give you electricity when you want them to, but obviously have the downside of being very bad for the environment. And you're replacing that with intermittent generation from wind and solar. It means that you've lost that kind of reliability and you've lost that base load generation. And so you need to find kind of innovative and new solutions to either reduce the peak of the demand or to also increase the usage of demand side users to take power when there's an abundance of wind for example. So I think being a part of that is a really key part of why we're trying to do this as well.
1: I suppose the thing is you, you look at this stuff and the thing you said that was very interesting is that you might have had this equipment for years, you don't really look at it and and this transition we're on, we're used to things using, not producing, yeah? Yeah. You buy something, you plug it in, And you pay your bills. Do we now start to think, you know, as business owners, you've got to think, actually, that that isn't just a consuming item, it's an item that I can use to balance, I can use it to help with my carbon, I can help generate revenue with it so we have we have to start thinking differently and if we do how do i know because I, I might know have no idea what half the things are in my factory in my office and what what could be used so how would you go about understanding first of all what an asset is and b how you might be able to exploit that
0: yeah so i think i think on the very first point there that we're changing to a grid where for the since the history of time effectively what we've had is a relatively static demand And we've matched the generation to meet that. So we've turned up coal plants, we've turned up gas plants to meet that demand, but that's flipping on its head. And we're now going to match demand to meet generation. So this is coming for businesses. I think the way to and when we've had kind of conversations with on-site engineers and things like that the first thing to really understand for customers and for businesses is to find out where the majority of your electricity use is coming from so is it one large asset is it a combination of small things that make up a process and i guess what we're trying to find is the inherent flexibility within those processes so it's no use us going to a car plant and saying shut down that plant that piece of machinery for an hour because then the whole process stops and it costs them a million pounds every minute they're off that doesn't help anybody but it's about finding the kind of edge cases where actually does this room need to be as cold as we've got it kind of tuned to does this process have to run 24 hours a day things like that so it's the kind of really understanding how your site works and then actually kind of fine-tuning and finding efficiencies there in that process
1: are we talking mainly about industrial kind of customers here or could it apply to i don't know an office block or something like that or a school What, what are we looking at really
0: so i think historically and what we're talking about in dsr isn't like brand new it's been happening in the industrial space for kind of probably over a decade now that market exists but the the kind of the really exciting thing in this industry is where it goes down a level it goes into smaller businesses it goes into offices and schools and anything like that and the enablement of that comes from the control of things like hvac to air conditioning in your office and also when offices are starting to say convert a lot of their or the, the people who go to their offices are converting their car from a petrol car and a diesel car to an electric vehicle and so you need charge points and things like that so i think we're going to a world where a lot of the stuff exists at the moment so in transport I've given the example the carbonization of heat is another where you're replacing kind of gas boilers for your heating and for your warming of water to electricity a lot of companies automatically become more flexible as we go along that journey so I think probably it's been thought of as an industrial and commercial product to date but as we progress on this kind of journey to net zero more and more customers and households and businesses and things like that become kind of attractive to schemes like this. I think this is interesting. How do I go about finding about it? So if I was to
1: ask you to come, what would you do? Would you come and do an audit of my machines? Would it be something you can just do remotely using software? How would how would you know what I've got? Or do you have to go and actually physically inspect You know, a team from your your, your department and go, hey, here's your assets that you can use, submit, and these are the ones we'd recommend and how you'd do it?
0: How do you go about it? So at the moment, it is an audit we'd go and look around with a so the, sorry to interrupt that's a physical you have... Yeah because like I said we, we're not quite at that spot yet where Offices have batteries or heat pumps and things where it's a kind of, it's a more of a cookie cutter approach where we say, oh, you've got a heat pump, it's made by Mitsubishi. We already control 20 of those. We can just connect to it by the cloud. That is coming and it's not far away, but at the moment it's more of a kind of physical audit. Let's look around, let's look what you've got. But the most important part about that is to, to kind of reaffirm a point I made earlier. It's that we want to understand how your business works and we want to work inside the parameters that you define. So we don't want to come here and say, look, I love what you're doing, I love the widgets you make, but you've got to stop doing it five hours a day because then your overall business might fail. This is about working within the constraints, understanding the needs of both procurement and finance, but also on-site operations, on-site engineers and things, making sure that, yeah, we want to find flexibility, but we want to do it in a way that doesn't kind of mess up what you're doing on-site for its primary purpose.
1: have to come and see the office or the plant or the school. How do I run it all? So I get it. Stage one, you come in and you do the audit, then do we need to be sort of running sort of software programs to do this? Do we rely on the grid, sending a signal to say, hello, is your asset available? We'll, we'll, we'll use it now. How would a customer go about knowing that it's, it's, it's doing it? And is it an active or a passive process, if you know what I mean?
0: Sure. So it depends on the customers. Kind of one of the USPs of the product that we're trying to sell at Drax is that we are looking to assess that flexibility up front and say, find a megawatt or whatever the number may be and then we would value that for a year at a time Uh, you'd end up with a pound note figure be it fifty thousand pounds be 100 whatever it is and then we'd guarantee it for the customer the idea there being that a lot of businesses don't want to think about their energy all day every day and that's what we're here to do so we we take the kind of complexity away from them we assess which markets are right to play in which opportunities there are in cost avoidance and things like that. And then we just run it for them and the customer just gets a cheaper bill every month. But Sounds a
1: bit like a PPA sort of thing, really.
0: Similar type of thing. I think that when we first started looking at this a couple of years ago, we felt that it was a kind of, it remains a really complex thing to get your head around as a business. And even for people who work in energy, it's a difficult uh, kind of thing to understand. So we just wanted to try and remove a lot of the complexity and just convert it into a, a number that is easy to understand and it's they, the customer doesn't necessarily have to care that we're doing x in dynamic containment and we're doing y in triad avoidance or whatever it may be they just know that they're going to get paid at the end of it but for some customers they really want to be involved in that and they want to be involved on in the daily decision making and they want to put some assets in this scheme some assets in this scheme and so we're, we're set up to do that as well but the idea is that the majority of it is done in an automated and kind of invisible way to the customer. You said
1: something very interesting there, which I think people's ears in this current climate would really pick up. You said you get the guaranteed price, mm-hmm. right? Now, obviously, we have no idea what's going on with the markets. Uh, they're very volatile at present. At the time of recording this, gas prices have actually gone down a bit, but we, we have no idea what's going to happen during during the winter. So if I go into this agreement with you, how do I know what price I'm going to get? How do you guarantee it? irrespective of what's happening in the markets and how long are these deals sort of set out for? Because that's something that obviously, you know, the the FD of company will go, well, yeah, right, we we might do this, but what's our return like to be in and over what time? Do you set sort of set figures of kind of, look, we guarantee you this return over this many years?
0: One of the things we require for this product to work for the majority of our customers is for us to to be the supplier. So a lot of the work here is done in the kind of arbitrage between finding a cheap price in a day and an expensive price in the day and running more in the cheap and uh, less than the expensive. So the idea is that we generally we would sign a contract for this for the remainder of the supply arrangement, be that one year, two year, three year or whatever it may be, but the guarantee we would give would be for 12 months at a time and that's for two reasons, one is because this market moves very quickly and there's new markets that come available in it. Every kind of quarter or every year, there's something new that you can play in. So we don't want customers to miss out on that. And also too, it's because then that's the kind of sweet spot in terms of minimizing the risk. So the amount of value that we can actually pass through to the customer is, is increased for the kind of 12 month period than it would be for two years, three years, et cetera. So we sign a contract for the entirety of the supply arrangement. And then every 12 months, we give a new valuation. And that gives customers kind of the leeway to say after 12 months, actually, we like that we've made this amount of money, but it was really difficult for us operationally. Or the opposite of that, we really like this and actually there's more flexibility we found. It gives us the opportunity to for them to then increase or decrease the amount that they do for the next 12 months.
1: An example of tool, Jake, you can tell the listeners about that sort of shows how this has worked.
0: Yeah, so um, we've been working with a company called Sundown Products for a couple of years now on this product. They have a a kind of usage profile that you wouldn't think would necessarily be flexible in that they are a large industrial user. They run 24-7 and it's all interconnected processes. So for those guys, the only way to find flexibility is actually to, to interrupt their whole process. It works for some down because the value of their end product is quite low. They make kind of hay and animal bedding and they did for the queen and still do for the royal horses. So for them, the interruption doesn't cost the millions of pounds like it would for car parts, but the value of the interruption is actually um, worthwhile doing for it. So for them, we came up with a bespoke arrangement. We do, we interrupt for 50 periods per year, one hour at a time, uh, and we've, paid them kind of approaching 100 pounds for that flexibility over the last couple of years and we'll continue to pay them somewhere in the region of fifty thousand pounds for the winter ahead so for them it's a it's a really easy thing to understand they don't mind kind of when we do it we give them enough notice so that it's not interrupting at a time when they crucially need it they have the ability to override and say you know what actually today i don't want you to do this Um, and we value it for them a year at a time and um all parties seem happy with it at, at the moment.
1: If you sit here and you're listening to this, you might think, "Well, it sounds all great," but there's always downsides to anything. And I'm not trying to, you know, shoot holes in it, but for businesses, they've got they've got to plan for this, haven't they? And they've got to, as you say, you never know how things change, how markets change, demands go up and down. What are the kind of? I wouldn't, I don't want to use the word guarantees, but What can you do to reassure people that, should their circumstances change, they can get out of something that they couldn't, they might need more of the asset than than they wanted to give, or that they have that control? How how do we do that? Is that really a flexible kind of part of a contract that's got to be written? Because you you need to, if you're going to make a deal even for for a year these days, that's a long time now.
0: Yeah. So I I think probably a couple of points there. One is that. A lot of the time that goes into this product is in that upfront kind of work trying to understand how these customer sites work. So. We it kind of lives and dies on the, the amount of input that the companies kind of engineers and people will put into it. But obviously, like you said, a decision you make today might not hold true in three months or six months or whatever. So we of course have the ability for customers to opt out. And what we've contracted to to date is that everything that happens. Uh, so if there's an under delivery, over delivery, whatever it may be, that we just we reconcile that on a cost reflective basis. So we're not we're we're doing this because we want to enable flexibility for our customers and for the grid as a whole we're not trying to penalize customers for not being able to do it like they said they were going to so if we guaranteed a number to a customer and then they weren't able to do it we would look to claw back our costs of course but we wouldn't kind of penalize them for doing that because we think it's kind of cool that they're willing to try it and they're being kind of early adopters in a space that's going to kind of boom massively in the next few years before we end let's talk about kind of the the
1: markets and we we know like we're in very very volatile times. But you said right at the beginning, one of the things that this can do is help companies on their net zero pathway. And I suppose that's really what I want to bring it back to before we end the discussion. We've got a new government, well, not a new government, we've got a new prime minister, and some people are not sure about her kind of allegiance to the old Boris uh, net zero mantra. My personal view is I think they will continue to do so. But it's very difficult to see that, that direction, Of traffic being reversed. So if we think that our net zero pathway continues, and businesses will be encouraged more to do things around energy saving, using assets, where does it help? You've talked about money, you've talked about contracts, flexibility. But where does it help a business when it comes to its carbon and its definitive goals around a net zero target?
0: So I think there's probably a couple of things to consider there. So I think that the first thing to consider is that the enablement of a kind of net zero grid comes from the decarbonisation of various different industries. So it comes largely from the decarbonisation of transport, from conversion of petrol and diesel cars to electric cars. And obviously the infrastructure that's required there is going to be EV charge points. The second one would be the decarbonisation of heat and the change of gas generation and boiling to uh, electric heat pumps. Both of those things do two things to the grid. One is that they massively increase the amount of electricity that's required. So I think in almost every future energy scenario that National Grid published by 2050, we're almost doubling the amount of electricity demand that's on the grid. So that comes with a problem But the kind of one of the solutions is that by connecting these electric assets, heat pumps and EV charges, you are just kind of installing inherent flexibility. So customers that are decarbonizing kind of away from their energy usage are able to help on this flexibility journey via the kind of control of those EV charge points and heat pumps. The second point is that the grid itself to decarbonize needs to replace fossil fuels and the flexibility that comes from fossil fuels and by flexibility there i mean the energy that's stored within a lump of coal or a unit of gas that provides inherent flexibility to the grid that doesn't come from solar and wind alone because you can't really control when the sun is shining or the wind is blowing so the grid itself needs to have sources of flexibility that can't come from the traditional ways of doing it so you can't just go and build brand new gas power stations you can't build new coal power stations so it has to come from flexibility on the demand side and that can be via kind of large batteries installed kind of grid scale but percentage of it is going to have to come from businesses being flexible themselves so it's a kind of it's like a macro effect the the customer themselves won't be able to kind of report on scope scope emissions because we're we're already supplying them 100 renewable power but they can enable the grid itself and' kind of you have to take a high level view of it to able to be able to meet the net zero aims of the country
1: is it something you think we'll see much more of over the coming years
0: i think it has to it has to happen
1: because because as you said in that last comment we can't build a way out of this i mean you know a power station takes years to build even wind farms take months to years to build you know and we need to have that flexibility with with, that comes with renewable energy so is this going to be something that actually becomes much more than you know a niche thing for certain businesses but kind of a general practice or will it never get that big
0: so I i think the best answer to that is to mention the demand flexibility service that national grid are procuring this winter So they have actually gone to the market and said, we need to find demand turned down from INC, from domestic, from anybody who can turn it down because they are worried about the system margins this winter. And this is still a grid that is in the transition state. So we still have gas, we still have some coal, we still have kind of legacy fossil fuel stuff to get us out of it. And National Grid are actively going to the market and saying, hey guys, we actually need the demand to turn down here to actually keep the system margin. In spec. So it's coming in the future, but it's here now. So I think it's a, I mean, it's a tremendously exciting time to work in this part of the industry because, like I said, from day to day things change. Volatile prices, security of supply are all things that are very, very interesting and very relevant to what we're doing. So it's coming, but it's here now is is the message I'd I'd like to give on that. Brilliant, Jake. Thank you so much. Um, and if people want to get in touch
1: after this, you happy to give out your email or, or what's the best way to reach you?
0: Yeah, um, So my email address is j.miller at drax.com, but you'll find me on LinkedIn or anything like that, Jake Miller. So yeah, feel free to reach out if you want to have a chat.
1: Yeah, I think there'll be a lot of people that'll be interested in that. Jake, thanks so much for your time today and joining us on Future Net Zero.
0: Brilliant. Thanks for having me. You have been listening to a promoted podcast from Future Net Zero. Thanks for listening to this Future Net Zero podcast. Please follow us on social media and subscribe to the website at www.futurenetzero.com.